Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode, a salty episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host for the day, Jonathan Hall. In the virtual studio, I also have co-hosts, Will Button and Jillian Rowe. I almost forgot your last name there, Jillian. Oh, no. I really do need to show up to the podcast more often, (laughs) don't I? What? Is that how that works? Uh, I have to talk to people for them to remember me. Like, what is this? <laughs> and we have a very special guest today. I scoured all of my social media contacts and accounts looking for somebody to come teach me about salt. And we found Nicholas Hughes. Welcome, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and maybe your relationship to SALT and, and DevOps, and then we'll, we'll start a conversation. Sure. Nicholas Hughes. I'm six foot three. I like long walks on the beach. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you single, too? Because this, this might be uh, the start of something beautiful with somebody listening. Yeah, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what demographics you think are on this show, but <laughs> I'm not sure this is going like the way that you might want for it to go. Just, uh, just throwing that out there. About, like being on the dating game, but I'm sure my wife would not like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So I run a consulting company called EITR Technologies. We've been in business for about five years now, and broadly, we we do automation, right? So we work with a lot of different automation systems. But I have a special place in my heart for Salt because I've probably been using that close to eight years and been really tied into the open source community. You know, we do a lot of work with just the open source project as a whole. Customers can come to us and say like, hey, you know, this functionality uh, is broken or we would love this feature or something like that. And we'll work with them not only on their implementation, but also as sort of like, a, I don't know, open source developer for hire. So we're really well integrated into that ecosystem. And it's just a big part of what we do. So when Jonathan reached out looking for somebody and said, hey, I might know a thing or two. That's awesome. So I don't know. I mean, Jillian knows what salt is. I must be in the minority here, and that's okay. I'm happy to be the the stupid one in the room. But I only learned about salt recently when a, a new client I started working with was using salt. And I'm still very much in the dark. Would you assume that there's at least one other person in our audience who's never even heard of salt and give them a brief description of what it is? Sure. Salt is an open source Python project, and it can do anything. (laughs) So Um, it's like Emacs. (laughs) No, it's like Vim. (laughs) So really, Salt was developed by Thomas Hatch back in like 2011 as an event-based automation and orchestration system. So really, the the event bus is the, the first party citizen in this. And that's one of the reasons that I say that it can do anything, right? Like a lot of... Salt's competitors might be like Chef or Puppet or Ansible or whatever, right? And like a lot of those systems were first party configuration management, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the thing that they set out to accomplish. We're going to throw down the the contents of this file and, you know, make sure that this service is started and all of those things. Salt can do all of that, but at its core, it, it was really the the event bus and the remote, remote execution system that enables it to do everything that it does, including all of the configuration management things. So some use cases for Salt might be 
installing applications, right? Like making sure that Nginx is installed and the services started and you know, certain websites are uh, enabled. Maybe it's like system security, right? You know, you're you're beholden to NIST or any other framework, right? You know, you can write security lockdowns and roll those out with salt. You can perform remote execution, which always tends to make security folks nervous when you say that, because <laughs> it's not the you know nefarious remote code execution. This is more like an equivalent to like PSSH or something like that, right? Like okay. I can reach out to all of my systems and do a thing and like execute a command and get results back and things like that. So that's what you tend to see Salt used for the most, but it can do a lot of things. And that's one of the reasons that it's it's often considered to be a little confusing starting out because there there isn't necessarily one way to do anything in salt, right? Like mm-hmm. it, you can do things multiple ways and it really depends on your use case, which is the exact reason that it's valuable to me as an automator, just because any particular thing that I want to do, I can generally do it. It's it's like having a a really big Swiss army knife in my pocket. Okay. Jillian, you've used salt before, apparently. How does your experience line up with the description that Nicholas just gave? Or would you add anything? As somebody a little bit maybe less experienced than Nicholas, is there something else that stands out to you as relevant? So so first of all, I haven't used salt in a while, but Mm -hmm. I think everything that Nicholas said is very accurate. It's kind of like you need to configure machines. You can also configure remote machines. They can all be event-driven, you know, like as Node comes up, do this stuff, bring it back down, which I do have to say all the event-driven stuff was really, really nice when it first came out because I don't think there was any other tool that could do that because I remember like at the time that I started using Salt, I'd been using Puppet before that. And I want to say it couldn't it couldn't respond to events. I don't know. But this this was a while ago, you guys. This like it's all getting kind of fuzzy. All the tech just sort of bleeds together. Yeah, t- Puppet eventually did have sort of like a tack on event-based service, but it was not capable of the same type of event-driven automation and orchestration that, that SALT has been for years. So when I hear you talk about this, a lot of the things you say kind of remind me of Kubernetes, like the event-driven. You know, <coughs> Kubernetes isn't per se an event-driven thing, but it has an event-driven component to it, right? Could you help me compare and contrast? Like, I think that the answer is that SALT and Kubernetes are completely different, but, but help paint that picture because I imagine there's confused people listening just like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so K- Kubernetes definitely can be sort of a, an event-driven platform, right? And it can feel sometimes similar because generally you're going to be writing your manifests in YAML and it's declarative, right? You know, oh. you you write this YAML and you say, this is the state that I want things in. And you apply that against your Kubernetes platform and it's there. And it's exactly how you expect it to be, right? Salt is similar in that regard, right? You know, Salt has a declarative piece to it where it does stateful enforcement of things, right? Like file states, services, package installations, and things like that. So it it definitely has a similarity in the declarative nature uh, of how it works. Salt also, by default, is going to leverage YAML for everything that you would write in it. There are other ways that that you can write those 
those files for for salt, but generally uh, YAML is is the most popular and the one that you see the most. Those similarities aside, right? Like Kubernetes is a, a whole platform, right? Like a lot of people call it a cloud operating system because right. it you know can run applications in a distributed nature. Salt is not that deep of a platform, right? Like running things at a core level. It can be used for uh, rolling out applications. It can be used for ad hoc imperative things like, I want to get the disk usage of these systems right now or something like that. Mm -hmm. It can be used for orchestration across machines, right? Like say you have a web server and a database server and you want to make sure that the database server is installed before the web server. You know, you can do those high-level abstractions, right? Where you you make sure that this machine is done before you roll on to the rest of your orchestration. But the, there's nothing that's like really hosted per se mm -hmm. in inside of Salt, right? Like it's it's more of a tool to get a job done as opposed to Kubernetes, which is like hosting things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe we could, I don't know the best way to go here. Um, Will, feel free to jump in with any questions or comments you have too. I don't want to dominate this necessarily. <clears throat> yeah, I do want to jump in real quick too. Yeah, so with Salt, uh, you know, Puppet, it uses an agent. Ansible uses SSH. What's the method for Salt to talk to the different things that it's controlling? How do you want to run it? <laughs> All right, perfect. Yeah, so the default setup for, for Salt is what they call a master and minion setup. It's agent-based. So you would have a server component that's running, and that's where all of your configurations are housed, right? Like that, that's where you write the things that the minions are going to do. And then minion software would be installed on all of your systems. And it either checks in intermittently uh, through a schedule or you can do event-based lockdowns, right? Where like, oh, I see that this file was just changed by Will on this server, right? <laughs> we don't want that, you know, we're going to slam down <laughs> something on there, right? So like we can trigger events that then come down and lock down that file again, right? And make sure that like local changes aren't, aren't being performed. So that's like a really valuable way to do things. The other ways that you can install Salt, you can use a component called Salt SSH that's very similar to how Ansible runs. It uses SSH as the transport. Essentially, it creates like a thin little package of what needs to be done and transports that over to the system. And then it runs, and then the result is shipped back over the SSH transport so you can see what happened. So if you want more of an agentless type of setup, you can certainly do that with Salt as well. There are folks that have been running Salt masterless. Uh, so think of an agent installed on the system, but it's not calling out to any sort of head end, right? So like... It's a really popular way to implement things in the cloud because you know you could have these ephemeral resources coming and going. And so what you can do is as long as your configuration artifacts are deployed to whatever minion is doing the, the work, 
it can just run locally and say like, all right, well, I'm going to lock this system down. I'm going to install this uh, application or this, that, whatever. And then it's all there. And if that system goes poof, then there, there's nothing to clean up in a uh, in a master, right? There's nothing like, oh, well, you know, we used to have Minion 12. Where, where did that go, right? And then finally, there's a really cool project called Heist that was sort of born out of some technology that the creator of Salt sort of championed. You know, he came up with this paradigm in, in Python called plugin-oriented programming. And essentially, it's kind of the concept that was born out of Salt, but abstracted and made better. And it allows you to write these plugin modules that can be like cobbled together to do something greater than the sum of its parts, right? So like it's, I don't know, you can think of it like forming like Voltron, right? <laughs> like, you know, you can put all these little plugins together and then all of a sudden like this application has a bunch of capabilities that weren't necessarily native to it. And so one of the applications that was written in POP is, is called Heist. And essentially, it's a way to deploy ephemeral agents over SSH. So think of it as I have a salt master. I have heist, sort of like semi-attached to it. I reach out over SSH with heist to some number of minions. And what happens is when it reaches out, it deploys an ephemeral agent that links back with the master and so it then acts exactly like a normal minion would, <clears throat> except when you're done and heist is brought down, the femoral agents disappear off the system. So they aren't like long running software. And then they just go poof and everything's magic. So I guess the answer to the question is, yeah, there, there's lots of ways to, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this kind of goes back to the the point you made early, uh, Nicholas, that salt does so many things that it can be confusing. And so it, it's not a simple answer to some of these questions, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, some of it has to do with, you know, people's personal preferences. Uh, some of it has to do with what best practices might be for folks who have been using it for quite a while and know what works and what doesn't, especially at scale. For instance, like Salt has this concept of pillar where you can distribute sensitive information like secrets to to minions in, in a secure manner. So at, at the core of, of Salt, it kind of uses a PKI infrastructure with public and private keys. And so you can think of it as like, okay, a minion has a public key that the master can use to encrypt certain information. And then the only thing that can decrypt it is the private key for that minion, right? So with Pillar, it's it's a really good way to distribute that type of information. But if you start overusing Pillar and put a ton of configuration information in it, and you say have you know, thousands of minions, you know, five or ten thousand systems all hooked up to to one master at scale, Pillar can be problematic, mm-hmm. and that's that's really because the cryptographic operations to sort of like take that information and encrypt it and distribute it to the minion, that's all on the master, right? So like the more minions you have and the more information you have to do that with, it can definitely slow things down on the master. So Mm -hmm. best practice is to to lightly use Pillar, 
but it really depends, right? It depends on on what you're doing, what's in there, and like how many systems you have. If you have 50 systems, like okay, go nuts. You know, mm-hmm. you use pillar as much as you want. But if you have 5,000, like oh, you know, maybe don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I want to maybe just tell you about how I learned about salt and, and why I, I was so curious to learn about it. And then um, maybe the answer to my question is going to be very simple and we can keep talking about other aspects. So I recently started helping a, a new client who is using salt with Jenkins to deploy their software. They're sort of a, I guess it's a monolith, but they kind of treat it like a microservice. That doesn't really matter. There's, there's like two or three Docker containers that are deploying with salt. And the team that set this up, I think they're in China or something and they've, left the company that was an agency or something they're gone i don't remember the, i don't know the details they're gone the, the team now managing this doesn't have the first clue about salt and they're eager to get rid of salt and switch to something else and i sort of had this thought like that might be a good idea but i'd rather know what salt is for and whether we're using it correctly or not before i potentially throw the baby out with the bathwater. you know yeah. the whole idea that you know don't do a refactor just because you don't understand something uh come to understand it first and then maybe refactor if it still makes sense so that, that's kind of the situation i'm in here now i guess we're doing config management of some sort with salt but the main thing it's doing is executing docker update or, or docker docker run commands over ssh essentially i know that you don't know the details but based on what i've said is this ridiculous is this great or somewhere in between <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably somewhere in between okay. uh, so it, this actually isn't a, a unique problem right like uh-huh. i i've also run into folks uh that i've dealt with that you know s- somebody has used salt in in a pipeline and it's doing things in some sort of integral build process and deployment and so when that person moves on, all of that specific knowledge kind of leaves. And, you know, now what? Maybe we we rip all that stuff out and we start over. And that's kind of what people want to push towards because they they don't understand or appreciate salt, right? right so right. like the people who who understand it and have used it tend to be fans just because of what it's capable of. Even the people that complain about it a lot, like, oh, it doesn't do this or that, you know, they're still not going to use anything else because it, it's the best solution for the other 99% of their problems. Mm-hmm. That said, because people can become fans, all right, like, let's not forget that that fan is short for fanatic, right? <laughs> right. So <laughs> people will sometimes try to use it for everything because it can do everything uh, when maybe it might not have been the best possible solution for something, right? And so that's why I say that that we at EITR are are automators, right? Like at a high level, we we concentrate on automation. We aren't like a salt consultancy. But it is a big part of what we do because Salt is an automation platform. But if you come in and say, like, hey, I want Salt in my pipeline or, you know, I want to rip Salt out of my pipeline, we aren't going to necessarily be prescriptive on technology until we understand what your outcome is. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we need to understand how things currently are working, how you want them to work and what are the best tools we can put in place in order to achieve that goal. And so without seeing it at all, uh, I'd imagine that it's it's somewhere in that realm, right? Like yeah. more than likely it, it does the job, 
and there's a good chance that it is the right tool for the job, but there's also an equally likely chance that that somebody just got carried away and maybe could have done this a little bit more simply. Yeah. All right. So how would you advise somebody, myself or anybody listening, to get started learning about salt? If, you, if you're interested in, in a, a new project or learning, you, you've just been onboarded onto a team that's using salt and they don't understand it and you want to learn it, how do you get started? So... The SALT open source community has a spectacular documentation lead right now in Elisa Rock, and uh, she is spearheading a lot of great documentation rewrites and revamps and has been for a number of months now. So there is more or less a brand new user guide that's currently housed in GitLab, which is apart from where the salt code bases in GitHub. <laughs> so okay. we, we have that documentation spread out a little bit, but I think it's all accessible through links on the salt project website. It should be saltproject.io. Mm-hmm. And so that documentation, I think, is, is a great starting point for, for new folks. The other thing that I'll say is that we have a really good community. And so any any mechanisms you can use to interact with that community. So like Slack, Reddit, things like that. You can definitely get in there and ask questions, right? Like, you know, read through the docs, see what you can see, and then like pop over to Slack and, and uh, you know, ask a question. You know, there's a lot of great folks that are a part of the community that, that will help you out. There's also some stuff on YouTube. So Salt Project has a YouTube channel and there's a lot of information from like past years and then also some recent stuff as well that go over some basic concepts. Uh, you know, Thomas Hatch did this like short little segment called Salt Air where, you know, like, oh, you want to understand the the state system? Let's talk about it for, you know, five, 10 minutes or something like that. And so it's nice little like bite size consumable chunks for for folks to sort of pick up a little bit more information on salt and then finally the eitr technologies blog uh show for that for a second so the uh our website eitr.tech tch we often write about salt in our interactions like whether it just be like oh you know here's this new feature that we rolled out or there was just a new release and we had like 40 PRs in it and here's what they all do. Or, hey, we found this cool feature that was kind of like hidden in salt and it's not really documented anywhere. So we're going to write about it, you know, those types of things. So between all those resources, there's, there's a lot of great information out there. Awesome. So you, you just touched on another question I wanted to ask. We'll do it now. <clears throat> what is your official capacity, if any, with regard to the SALT project? It sounds like your company creates PRs. Are you an official contributor or what, what, is that, what would that even mean on that project? Uh, what's your relationship to SALT proper, so to speak? Let's see. So I was the cloud working group captain for about two years. So SALT does have capability to, to do cloud infrastructure automation as well. Salt Cloud is the mechanism to do most of like it can bootstrap VMs in a particular cloud and tie them into the Salt Master, which is really nice. Uh, so you can do sort of like event-based automation in the sense that like I could deploy 10 VMs, right? And once they start spinning up, they're sending start 
service messages back on the event bus and saying like, hey, I'm here now. And then you can do automation on that. Like, okay, you know, Larry, Moe and Curly, my new VMs are all, uh, you know, ready to go. You know, let's go ahead and what we call high state them and basically, you know, slam down all the configurations that apply to them. So there's that. And then there's also execution modules and state modules that do cloud things inside of Salt. So like you want to spin up some resource group and a virtual network in Azure, Mm -hmm. you know, you can definitely do that using the same declarative YAML configuration syntax that you would with, you know, plopping a file down on a system and starting service and things like that. So I, I sort of had that like, semi-formal role for a little while. And now, so SaltStack, the company, was acquired by VMware. um, And VMware has rules when it comes to people outside the company (laughs) being like super hands-on in their repositories, I guess. So there's only so much that I can do, but I am sort of considered a contributor in the sense that like, you know, I can't merge PRs, but I can do everything up to it, right? Like, you know, I can change labels on stuff. I can help people through things. I can improve PRs. Mm -hmm. So I'm tied into that quite a bit. And I'm kind of a fixture at all the open hours and things like that. So I've, I've just been around enough that I'm kind of like, I don't know, this, the salt mascot at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. So we talked about how like, there's so many different things that salt can do. And then by extension of that, there's also a lot of other tools that can solve that problem. But based on your experience, what are your top go-to solutions where you see this problem, you're like, that's salt all the way, all the way every day. So I think it really has to do with the scale of operations, right? So, you know, there's a certain point at which once we get past that, I tend to throw out other solutions. Like if you want to do certain things at a certain level, I'm not going to have you even Ansible, right? Like Ansible's super popular and things like that. And Great, but it is so incredibly slow at scale, right? <laughs> but because it's using SSH as a transport, like if I have to go and do a thing across 5,000 machines, I'm not going to pick Ansible. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. And so the the core of, of how Salt works and the reason why it's so scalable is that it tries to put as as little stress on the master as possible. And so essentially if I need to go do a thing on 5,000 machines, like I want to see disk usage on the root volume for 5,000 machines all at once, right? I I could certainly SSH into each one of those one by one. That would be super fun. Or you could do something like PSSH, right? And you're generally going to like be batching up SSH sessions and trying to like probably dump that into a file or, you know, parse it coming off of the, the terminal. Well, assault, I could do that same thing. And the way it accomplishes it is not to reach out into those systems and run the commands and return it. Essentially, all it does is it's got the event bus. It publishes a job and it says like, hey, everybody, give me disk usage on slash. And they're all subscribed to that. And so through that pub sub relationship, the the minions just say like, oh, I have a job to do. I'm going to do this thing. And so you've distributed all of that work at that point, right? So then they they all finish 
they're all running essentially at the same time. And then they start shooting information back to the, to the master, like, hey, here's my info, here's my info. And all the master is doing is aggregating that information. And so all of a sudden, in the span of seconds, you have all of that information back. And, you know, I can like output that as JSON and then do weird things to it with JQ or whatever I want to do, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's really just the scale of operations that... I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is a salt thing. The other thing is when you have like really unique event-based automation things that you want to accomplish, right? Orchestration is a great example of that. I mentioned earlier, you know, having a, a website and a database that are on separate systems. That type of orchestration isn't necessarily as easily implemented with other systems, but it, it really depends. You know, some customers will be opinionated on their tooling, right? And so then you, you sort of like end up living inside of whatever it is that they want to, to be writing things in. How does Salt work with, quote, the cloud? Like, it sounds like it works really well if you have either physical servers or, or even just VMs, more static type VMs. But does it work well with container-based workflows and, and, and installations? And if so, how? Or, or is it really a different solving different problems? So we're kind of at an inflection point with cloud right now and Salt. So I think what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about another future possibility and then we'll 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 come back and okay. we'll we'll talk about the differences. So I already mentioned Heist is a a, a pop application, right? Uh, mm-hmm. there's this other one called Item. It's I D E M short for item potent. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what this started out as was the the salt state system abstracted so it can do stateful enforcement of stuff. And then I think it was basically like, uh, we don't necessarily want to write, like rewrite a salt competitor. But the one thing that is really dated inside of salt are the cloud APIs, right? Like they're just, they're not being kept up to date as quickly as they need to be. And there's reasons for that. So with item, it's, it's a pop application. You can plug in different clouds, right? Like, so AWS uh, was the first one that they really worked hard on. Well, besides like VMware stuff, right? Like who sure. was one of the, the the main modules that they came out with. But uh, you have VMware and you have AWS and Azure and stuff like that, right? And Item can, can do stateful enforcement, similar to Terraform, but it's in YAML. It's a little bit cooler in, in the types of things that it can do. I think Terraform just actually recently implemented a feature that's been in item for a while. So it might be that that Terraform's starting to take notice of item. But item had has this described capability where you can essentially like say I don't have any infrastructure as code whatsoever. I can describe my cloud environment and essentially spits out all the YAML that does stateful enforcement, all of, the, all of those things. And so now I've captured my entire entire environment in, in YAML and I can throw that in a Git repo and I can reach out and make sure that there's no drift intermittently and things like that. All the stuff that, that you really want IAC to do. So... Items a thing. There are integrations that are built into Salt to be able to leverage item. So going forward, there's a good chance that what we're going to end up with is the duo of Salt and item to be able to do, you know, like second day operations things on your deployed systems. But item is your your cloud management tool. 
That said, there, there are cloud things that are in salt currently. One of the reasons that they get out of date is that salt's releases are somewhat infrequent when we talk about things in the context of cloud, right? Like cloud moves, moves fast. There's constantly new services being released, you know, new versions of APIs and things like that. And so when you only release a couple times a year, that's not so great. I wrote all of the Microsoft Azure functionality back in the beginning of like 2018 in salt. And so that did not make it into a stable release until February of 2019. So we're talking about a year, a little bit over a year between, you know, like, hey, you know, I got this thing to, hey, it's there for people to use. And that's just, that's a lifetime in cloud. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a parallel initiative that we have going on right now to the development of of item is the concept of salt extensions. And essentially what that is, is kind of adopting the item plugin mentality. So you have this salt extension where you take some of the code that relates to a certain thing and you put it out in its own repository, which can iterate as fast as you like. And then all you have to do is like pip install that thing into salt and you have all of the functionality. So in version 3007, which is the the next major release, all Azure functionality will be completely gone from salt. And if you want to use Azure in salt, the salt extension is now the way to go because I own that extension and I can roll a release in five minutes, right? Like you have a bug and needs to be fixed now. We can do that and we can roll out a release. We can get it up on PyPy and you're good to go. So that's a much more effective way to do cloud in Saltland. And so we're starting to see this mass exodus of functionality that requires uh, fast moving capabilities into Salt extensions. You also mentioned uh, containerized environments. There's been a lot of discussion in doing the same thing with Kubernetes. So there is currently Kubernetes functionality in the Salt code base, but again, it's kind of dated. So it needs to be revamped and carved out into an extension so that we keep up with Kubernetes. And then, you know, we can manage Kubernetes things in Salt. I should have said that I'll just keep talking indefinitely <laughs> if somebody right. asks me questions. <laughs> I, I do have more questions, but I want to give someone else a chance if they want. So. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to comment that, that that seems like a really reasonable approach to me, you know, because you have like your core Salt functionality that you want to be stable and reliable, but then adding an extension ecosystem allows you to add new features and adopt to things that are outside of your control without having to change the iteration cycle or the workflow for your core product. So I I think there's a lot of logic behind that decision. Yeah, I mean, the the core team is only so big, right? And Salt is a big sprawling code base. And what we've had happen over the years is that people will contribute modules to salt that were important to them at the time. And then maybe they move on and they, they aren't in that role anymore. And you know, that thing has become inconsequential. And so we have things that just sort of languish in the, in the code base just because nobody really cares about them. You know, we don't 
think anybody is using them, right? And then, like, in the future, sometimes somebody will go to use it and, like, oh, well, it's there. Well, yeah, you know, but, <laughs> you know, th this really is a community endeavor to keep all these things up to date. There's certainly core functionality that people are always going to use, right? And will probably always be in the core of salt, you know, like file management, service management, things like that. And certainly all of the fundamental building blocks of salt will always be in that core repository. But there's a lot of things that, that make sense to, to carve out you know, as separate entities. And then we can sort of see how, how dated those things really are when they're in their own repository. So I want to ask the opposite question from what Will asked earlier. He asked about typical use cases for salt. When are the what, what are some examples that you might think of that are a, a bad fit for salt or that, that you've seen? I mean, I'm sure we could think of ridiculous things, but like, have you seen salt used in really bad ways that it shouldn't have been used before? That's a great question. So I think the, the, the times that have really stood out to me that were kind of in that vein, it's when, when people have business processes that have been adapted to other tool sets, and then they're unwilling to adopt different processes when they transition to salt. So like, say... Say you're a puppet shop, right? And, you know, like you do operations the puppet way and you expect these things to be done uh, in this mechanism. If in transition you try to use salt in the way that you've used puppet, it's not necessarily bad, but it's certainly not the most efficient way to do salt things, mm -hmm. right? Like salt wants to be used in the way that salt is best used and when you do things apart from that process you, you end up with not ideal situations right like whether it be uh, performance problems or you know potentially workflow problems and things like that right like there's there's definitely i've seen chicken and egg problems in in salt before especially around grains so grains are kind of like puppet facts right you know they're information about a system that are generally not changed that much, right? Like how many CPUs does the system have? How much memory does it have? What operating system is it running? So, you know, some of that is is pretty static, right? You know, like system BIOS type and things like that. Okay, you know, like how often is that going to change? <laughs> Probably going to retire the system before you're going to, you know, change the BIOS of the system. So some of that stuff's not going to change at all. And some of it's like operating system. Maybe you upgrade from like Debian 10 to, to 11 or something like that. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen every day, right? So like grains are kind of meant for that. But it's it's very much like independently derived information. You know, that information is what it is. Some folks try to use grains in this like layered aggregate way where it's like, okay, well, you know, all this information about a system means that it's this type of system. So let's make a grain that gives it like this role of whatever, right? And then, oh, well, systems with this and this and that role then have this other thing. So let's make that another grain and right, like you have this grain sprawl. Mm -hmm. And that information as grains, it's probably not the best way to do things generally, right? Like, and I sometimes have trouble convincing people of that just because, you know, it, it's not really meant to be used in that way. And once you start to to use it in that way, you know, things start to, to fall apart pretty quickly. <laughs> right. 
how ubiquitous is salt? I just heard of it recently, you know, a couple months ago. Um, you've been using it for years. How frequently do you find people who've never heard of it versus those who've been using it maybe casually? You know, I don't know really how to how to how to answer the question like in any sort of objective way. But I'm just curious, how common is salt actually out there in the wild? It's surprisingly common because it keeps such a low profile. I haven't found that many people that just have never heard of it. Mm-hmm. I have, but it's it's not that many. Generally, I hear from folks that it was like used in this one part of their organization or like on this one project that they were on and things like that. And like there's these little pockets of it just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if it's like the equivalent of Johnny Appleseed. It's just one dude traveling around to like literally every organization and just like, I like salt. I'm going to put it here. But you know, like it feels that way sometimes just because, you know, you see all these like, like, Oh yeah. You know, this, this thing over here is doing it. This thing's over here is doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the biggest, the biggest wake up call that there was this silent majority of people who were using it and we just didn't know about it was a couple of years ago, there was a fairly bad vulnerability that was found by some researchers. And so there was this, you know, like notification process and things like that. You know, the cell core team is trying to make sure that everybody knows that a patch is going to come out at a certain time. Like, hey, it's going to be disclosed at this time. Make sure that you patch your systems. But the, the notification channels for these people who are just like using it and not really engaging in the community like how how do we how do we get word to them (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and so what ended up happening was the vulnerability was disclosed some nefarious folks on the interweb started scanning for open salt masters which is a terrible thing to do by the way like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you should I don't care how secure you think that is. The, the salt master is the keys to your castle, right? Like yeah, if you get right. into that, it's literally touching all of your systems. Don't connect your salt master to the internet ever. But uh, evidently a lot of people were, right? Like to manage offline systems like laptops and stuff like that without having to VPN into an organization. There's like, oh, well, it's cryptographically secure, right? Like it's using PKI. Like, eh, yeah, maybe don't do that. Um, <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> they found like 2,500 unsecured systems on the internet. Wow. Okay. And so they, there was this mass influx of, of folks into like Slack and, and other places saying like, my, my salt systems are acting weird. Does anybody know what's going on? I, th- I think that the, there's like some sort of virus and everybody's like, yeah, there's just like the CVs disclosed and there's like this big master thread that I think somebody memorialized up on Git somewhere, but it was basically like all of the discovery that went into figuring out how people were infecting the systems, right? And then some some thoughts on like, okay, you know, between these time periods, it was this, and then you can remove it and everything's good. If it's a little bit later, they had more time to like, do really bad things and you're probably looking at like reinstalling all of your systems like it's a really good read and it's kind of scary <laughs> but it was interesting to to see all of the the different people that came out of the woodwork that 
were using salt that we had never heard from before. And it, it was all because of this CVE. <laughs> and, you know, you, you find things like, okay, well, you know, like certain governments are, are using salt, right? Like we, we didn't know that, you know, <laughs> certain large organizations, like multinational corporations were using salt. That was never like publicized. You know, some folks have publicized it, right? Like LinkedIn has been a user of salt since like almost the very beginning. Mm-hmm. There have been some other big ones, like I think Liberty Mutual had like a really great use case on network automation that they were publicizing for a while. Where they're saying like, oh yeah, we we managed like thousands and thousands of switches and routers and stuff with salt. But then there was all these other ones that like, you know, never heard that they were using it until, you know, something went terribly wrong. So, you know, I think that it, it's kind of like, it's definitely a sleeper tool, right? <laughs> like <laughs> it's got a lot of fans out there. It's got a lot of really great use cases, but it definitely flies under the radar. Mm-hmm. Jillian, I was curious if you wanted to talk about your experience with salt. It, it looked like before we started recording, we might have a sort of arm wrestling match going on here. I want to see if we can start some sparks here. Do you want to tell us? Your- oh, I'm always happy to start drama on the podcast. So, you know, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, so when so I was using salt a while ago when I was still working on HPC centers that were, you know, like in-house, so not on the cloud. And salt was really great for that because it had the event-driven architecture. And for HPC, you know, like you start a job, node comes up, uh, job finishes, node goes back down. That's you know, that's generally how it's supposed to work. And it was really great for being able to configure like all these different workflows for all the different use cases. We would have uh, different, like depending on how the jobs were submitted, they would mount different storage or they would have different services start on them. Being able to configure like MATLAB servers. I remember that was probably the biggest one because MATLAB is like just it's really tricky to configure because of all the licenses and whatnot, especially if you want to have it on demand because you have like a shared a shared environment. Like typically an HPC system is you have like one login node and then you have, you know, however many compute nodes. I think this was like around 200, if I remember correctly. And you have lots of different users with lots of different needs and demands and they all want to have different things. So being able to have that kind of event-driven architecture, we were saying, okay, when this node comes up, if it is deployed with these parameters, start up MATLAB or start up, you know, the server for the microscope or the sequencer, just, you know, like whatever. It was really great for that. And then I hadn't used it you know, since I got more into cloud stuff and then I tried to use it again. And I think I was trying to use it with the AWS parallel cluster where AWS manages the events. And like, I know like there's events in there somewhere with the AWS parallel cluster, but I don't like really know where they are. And so I think I was having a hard time getting salt to kind of like match up with what I expected. And it also seemed to be more complicated than I remember, but that might also just be like, I have fewer brain cells than I used to too. So it's a bit of like, where where does the problem lie here? Is the problem, is the technology the problem or am I the problem? Because at any given time, it's like 50-50. Yeah, you know, troubleshooting those types of scenarios are super fun, right? Especially when you start to involve the event bus because you can see things going on in the event bus, right? Depending on how busy your event bus is, it could be flying by at breakneck speed though, right? Like if you're trying to pick out 
a particular event, it's it's tough sometimes, right? Like there's a lot of, okay, you know, I'm going to try and like dump this to a file and then like grep stuff out or, you know, maybe look at the file with a, an editor after the fact. But if you don't have a noisy one, you know, sometimes you can pick stuff out in the event bus that, that's going on. The complexity is is tough, right? Because, you know, if you're doing things across systems, right, like logging occurs on your master and your minion. And so you have the event bus, which, you know, is, can be globally viewable from either side. But when actual code is being run by a minion, right, like that's not necessarily viewable by the master, right? So like you have to bounce back and forth sometimes to to figure out exactly what, what's happening. And, you know, the, the best early stage example I can see of that is there's a salt command on the master that you can use to target a minion and run stuff on it, right? Like I was talking about running a disk usage command on thousands of machines before. That would be via that, right? Like I'm I'm targeting all systems. I'm targeting one system. It doesn't matter, right? It's just a target. And so when I do that, that command, all it's doing is submitting the job to the event bus and then waiting for all systems to return. That's all it does. So it'll sit there and it'll block the whole time. And if people try and run that command in debug or look at the, the log files on the master, all you're going to find is stuff related to that process, which was job submission and waiting for returns. The actual execution of the commands, the stuff that's being done, all of that's being logged over on the minions. So the distributed nature of how things work in SALT sometimes make it problematic to, to troubleshoot in that regard. The other thing that I'll say is that there are so many ways to configure it. It's It can definitely get complex that way as well. So that job queue, it natively lives in the default event bus implementation that Salt has, and that's zero MQ for PubSub. But if you want to keep the job queue someplace else, you can do that. So like, say you have two masters and you're running them like more or less independently. If you wanted to share the same queue so that minions connected to either master could see those jobs, you can hook Redis up to your masters and outsource the, the job queue there, right? Like say you want to share configuration artifacts between systems, you can share through a, a configured backend file system. So you know, like normally a master will share files with a minion off of its local file system. You could set up like GitFS or something like that so that your files, artifacts, whatever, are all in some Git repo that is going to pull down and serve out to the, the minions. And so then you start to like centralize some of the components outside of salt, but it, it still gives you all of the glue to do that. So yeah, I think I'm just reaffirming that yes, it is complex, well, it can be complex, and it can sometimes be difficult to, to troubleshoot. It really requires you to know how things fit together. And so I don't even know if they're they're still giving out this certification, but there was like a certified salt stack engineer certification. And like literally a large portion of that exam was just, where does this run? Where does this render? Where does this? Yeah, it's like, okay, you got to know where things happen because of the distributed nature of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely true of all distributed systems. The first thing that I figure out is like, where does it log to? How do I just get a shell? 
you know, how do I execute a command remote, like locally and remotely? How do I check those things? So that's definitely true. If anybody's still listening who hasn't decided they want to try using salt. Never. <laughs> would be your, your like elevator sales pitch. Like if, if this is your problem, use salt for this or, or you should try salt because of X. I don't know. Like if I had to come up with a pitch for it, it would probably just be me singing Vanilla Ice, right? Like if you've got a problem, yo, salt will solve it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can do much better than that, quite frankly. Like, it, 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 it's tough. <laughs> it's worth looking into, right? Like, like I said, we don't use salt on every project that we have, but it, it's kind of like a decision point that's really high up in the process when we're trying to work out tooling. Like, is this a job for salt? Like a lot of times, yes, but it, it's worth being considered for, for the job. And then, you know, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. Cool. I'm going to be checking out those resources you suggested earlier. I'm going to try to learn some salt and see if I can uh, make sense of what we're doing with this client and, and make it make sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you make your way onto the uh, onto the Slack workspace, and you can hit me up. I'm Nicholas M. Hughes. Not hard to find. Cool. That's awesome. Anything else we should talk about? Anything we should have asked that we didn't uh, before we move on to closing out? No, I don't think there's anything that you asked that you didn't ask that we should have covered. I think the only thing that I'll, I'll sort of like throw out there, right, is that I kind of hinted at that it is a really cool community. It's, it's very accepting of new folks. You know, I haven't seen too many people be like super smarky. I can, I can maybe think of one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you're always going to have somebody like that There's hanging around just yeah. looking it's to stir up trouble. Yeah. It's Jonathan, but you know, it's, it's a really great community and it's got great folks in it. And if there's anybody out there that is just starting out in IT, just starting out in software development, just starting out in systems administration or DevOps or anything, it's a really great place to learn, right? Like, like eight years ago, when I first got introduced to salt, I wrote zero Python code. And a lot of the way that I learned more about writing Python was submitting bug fixes and like working on issues and salt. So there's definitely a lot of work out there to be done. It's also advice to I give I, I give to uh, folks that are in school. Like you're gonna learn how to code in school a little bit, but in general, find an open source project. There's tons of them. Find one that that speaks to you and go get involved in it. Right, like mm -hmm. it's it's going to up your development game so much more than anything that you could do at school. Awesome, good advice. That was my preachy section of the. Yeah, that's good. If people would like to hear another sermon, is there any way that <laughs> <laughs> they can reach out to you on social media and get in touch? Grab yeah. your credit card and call this number. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty active on on LinkedIn. So Nicholas Hughes on LinkedIn, uh, CEO of EITR Technologies. I'm Nicholas M Hughes on pretty much everything, right? So like if you got the LinkedIn URL, it's just Nicholas M Hughes at the end of it. And yeah, I think that's probably the best way to to stay in touch with me. As far as like sermons and such, EITR Technologies does have a YouTube channel. And so if you just like listening to me talk about like weird random crap, and you also like kind of funny skits for people that are being ridiculous, then uh, <laughs> go ahead and, and subscribe to that YouTube channel and uh, check us out. Cool. Awesome. Well, let's move on to picks then. Who would like to go first today? Not it. All right. <laughs> All right. I'll take it. I'll take a swing. So my pick today, if 
for those who don't know, I've been training to run a 100-mile marathon or ultra marathon at the end of October. And so I've been running quite a bit to get ready for that. And so there's this thing that I didn't know was real or salt stick tablets or salt tablets for replacing electrolytes that you lose while sweating. I've been taking them for a couple of weeks now and had zero issues with cramping, with like soreness and like water retention. Cause I live out in the desert where today it's going to be 113 degrees Still got to get my run in. And so, yeah, salt stick tablets, they're actually pretty, they don't taste like salt either, which is a huge plus since we're talking about salt here. They're, they taste like, you remember the, the vitamin C tablets that you ate as a kid? So like fake orange flavored ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They taste exactly like that. <laughs> But they, they work really well for muscle cramping issues and also water retention so that as you drink the water, your muscles and your body actually retains it instead of just sweating it right out. So there you go. On the top so salt, salt really can solve any problem. Right? See? It is just the universal tool. <laughs> I like how thematic that pick was. That was that was good. <laughs> I wish I could say I thought that out, but I was halfway through giving that spiel and I was like, oh, wait. This totally ties. Missed opportunity <laughs> for so many people. the rest is going to look bad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I guess I have a pick, but it, it's not salt related. I can't figure out how to tie it in. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, ruined it for everybody. I guess I could pick the first season of Star Trek, the original series, episode one or like the second or third episode is where they go to the planet where the, the alien creature sucks all the salt out of the bodies of the of the victims. So there's there's that one. If she just had these tablets you're talking about, Will, she wouldn't have needed to do that. Could have saved it some, would at least try to process out. <laughs> so my, my pick today is a book I'm listening to on audiobook. I usually use physical or, or ebooks for, for software related books, but this one I decided to try on audiobook and it's working well. It's a modern software engineering by Dave Farley. So he, he wrote Continuous Delivery, I don't know, close to 10 years ago with Jess Humble. And he has this new one out that came out, I think, end of last year. Uh, and it's really good. It's it's just about, you know, how to, the practices more than the code of writing modern software and how to test it and the mentality you need around making modular code and, and cohesion and all this sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a good book. I was kind of hoping that Dave had narrated it himself. Uh, since he has a YouTube channel, he has a good voice. It's narrated by a woman. No ill feelings towards her, but I was wishing for Dave's voice. So anyway, it's still a great book. I recommend Modern Software Engineering by Dave Farley, whether you listen to it or read it with your eyes. Uh, so it's it's summer where I'm at. So I'm basically reading, you know, trashy romance novels and space operas. And that's that's really it. I really appreciate the fact that you guys are still reading, you know, actual books. Uh, so I'm just going to pick Lindsay Broker. She's an author. She's on like Amazon. You can go to Amazon and get any of her books. She writes a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. And I've been binge reading pretty much everything by her. And they're all really good summer reads. So I'm out on my deck with my books. And that's it. That's the pick. Nice. Awesome. Cool. I guess that brings it to me. So after Will went, I was scrambling to find something that was salt related. Um, <laughs> and the, the best I could come up with was before I started EITR, you know, I told you that I, I had been involved in the community. I went to SaltConf in 2017. So SaltStack used to have a conference around salty things. And when I went there, you could sign up for an opportunity to meet with like senior leadership of uh, SaltStack, the company. And I was like looking at the list of people and I'm like, I don't want to talk to any of these guys except for Thomas Hatch, who was the CTO and co-founder of SaltStack and the guy who started the whole thing. And so I signed up for an opportunity to sit with him 
And, you know, most people had like an agenda that they wanted to go over, right? Like they're like, oh, you know, Tom, check out my thing. Or like, you know, hey, we, our companies need to work together or whatever. But like, I was just like a dude who worked at a consultancy and I was just like, oh, it'd be fun mm-hmm. to talk to him. And I guess one of his assistants reached out to me prior. Like, okay, so like, what are you going to be talking to, to Tom about? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to wing it. And, uh, <laughs> <Nerd> <laughs> out. <laughs> and so he he comes into the room uh, during SolConf during our session and he sits down and he introduces himself and he's like, so uh, on my little sheet, it said that we're winging it. My winging it? Are you winging it? Are we winging it together? Like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And so that was my first face-to-face interaction with, with Tom. And one of the things that I asked him was really like, yeah, like how how do you get from where I am, you know, as a technical implementer to like a leadership type role in a company? And he recommended a book to me that I now recommend to everybody else uh, who is interested about that type of path. And that is called uh, The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier. So that is my pick. It's somewhat salt related because Thomas Hatch recommended it to me and now I'm recommending it to everybody else. Very nice. nice. Cool. Well, thanks again, Nicholas, for coming on and helping to educate me and our entire audience about the amazing benefits of salt. I'm looking forward to learning more about it. So yeah, just a big shout out and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Great. We will see you all next week on Adventures in DevOps. Until then, have a good one. Bye.